you guys know me, I'm used to preaching through books of the Bible, and we just finished a series on stewardship, which was already kind of weird, and uh, next week we'll start on Christmas, which is not weird at all, um, but we'll start on Christmas, but I've got this one Sunday right now, right here, today, that's wedged in between the stewardship thing and the, the stewardship series and, and Christmas, uh, and so I get to do something that I very rarely ever do or get to do, which is preach on whatever I want to preach on. So I loaded up both barrels, and here we go. No, no that's not. No, I, I wanted to share something with you today that, um, honestly, it's taken me uh, 48 years of life to get to what I'm about to share with you today. And I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm preaching today to the younger in the audience with, uh, with also side benefits to you medium and older folks because you're parents and grandparents of the younger in the room. And so um, uh, this, what I'm about to share with you, it's, it's taken me a long time as a human being, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be able to share with you what I'm going to share with you. But I think, for me anyway, it's life-changing, and I pray that for you as young people and parents and grandparents, that it will be meaningful as well. You see, I think that there's a question that we all ask ourselves at one point in life, and that's this, what is the good life? What is the good life? Well, I think that for many of us, what we, would, what we would say is the good life is having maximum freedom to do whatever we want. And I want to submit to you this morning that, that I think that's a true statement, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Somewhere along the line, like that scene in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones creeps into that cave where there's a gold relic that he's trying to get, Right? Uh, but he knows that there's uh, traps all around, so he has to like weigh out a bag of sand, and then very carefully he has to he has to switch that gold statue with a bag of sand to avoid getting killed, to avoid the the traps being set off and him being uh, him being killed. Well, he set off the trap anyway, and he and he survived. But but there's been a switch on us, and I think that switch has definitely happened out in the culture, and I think it's making its way into the church. And I want to, for the sake of our young people as a minimum, and all of us as a maximum, I want, I want to talk about that this morning. And that is, I think that the definition of freedom has been co-opted. It's been changed. See, I think, I think the culture around us, and in some ways in the church, I think that we, we understand freedom as a very secular and unbiblical definition. Freedom is, in other words, is doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Wouldn't that be nice? Freedom is doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Well, let's just think about that for half a second. Uh, I'm, I'm a tall Indiana boy, and I like to play basketball. In fact, I remember when I interviewed for, uh, when I came here to candidate nine years ago, over nine years ago, I remember somebody uh, opening up the door to the gym and turning on the lights, and I saw the gymnasium and the basketball hoops and the wooden floor, and I got very excited. <laughs> yeah. I could take this church. <laughs> but uh, let's just say right now, I wanted to, you know, it's, it's uh, 1115. I want to leave the pulpit right now and I want to go down and I want to play a game of basketball. Uh, first of all, that's not really my job at this, red hot, at this red hot moment. But let's say I went down to the gym, I turned on the lights, I got out of the basketball, found some basketball clothes and I started playing basketball. What if there's another group in there? Now what do I do? How do we mitigate that deal? Is it, 
do I get to pull out my pastoral authority? You know, the, the, the vast amounts of pastoral authority that I have here and say, I am the pastor and you must leave now. Thus saith the pastor. Is that, is that how this is gonna work? All right, do we go by who scheduled the gym first? I mean, how are we gonna work this out? What you quickly realize is that if your definition of freedom is I get to do whatever I want whenever I wanna do it, invariably you're gonna hurt other people in the process. At least you're gonna cause conflict, but you're gonna, you're gonna hurt other people in the process. And so I wanna to submit to you that, that our world is, is bent right now on a definition of freedom that is I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. And, and, and it extends into every, it's pervasive. It ex extends into every facet of life. I get to be who I say I want to be. I get to, I get to, yeah, I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and that's it. That's not a biblical definition of freedom. We're going to explore what the definition of freedom is today. And what I'm going to submit to you young people is, is that in buying into the secular in the, into, the, into the worldly definition of freedom, which is I get to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it, you're actually buying into a lie that will drive you into slavery. Before we get too far into this, I really don't care a whole lot about my outline or the, the PowerPoint and all that. That's all secondary to what I'm going to try to convey today. If I get through it, fine. If I don't, Whatever. I got a question for everybody in the room. What is, before you answer, let me explain. So I'm gonna ask the question then I'm gonna give it some, some, I'm gonna fill in some details. What's the quintessential story of the Bible? I mean the story that everything points back to. Everything, the, 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 the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ points back to this. Jesus talks about uh, this. The prophets talk about this event. This event is talked about all throughout scripture. What event am I talking about? It's the exodus. The exodus of the Israelite people from Egypt. First service nailed you guys. Sorry. But if you look throughout scripture, what you're gonna find is you're gonna find time after time after time, the, the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people are referring back to the liberation of God's people from Egypt by God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm but here's the part that people leave out. And, and I, I do want to be honest and say that people on the earth have constructed very bad theologies around the Exodus, very bad theologies that are not biblical at all. But I'm talking about a biblical theology of the Exodus. When Moses, when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh, what were the words that he wanted to tell Pharaoh? Yeah, you fell right into my trap. He did say, let my people go. In fact, in Exodus chapter eight, don't turn there. I'll, I'll just read it. Uh, you can look at it later. The, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go. But that's not the end of the sentence. Let me read the whole sentence. Let my people go that they may serve me. You see that? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, here's, the, here's another problem. I'm just gonna encounter it head on. When, when, when I say those words, God said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. We think about service and we think, oh, more work. That's a drudgery. 
I don't like work. I like couch. I like potato chips. I like Ohio State game. I like Coca-Cola. I don't like work. I don't like service. And therein lies the problem. Folks, today what I want to help you understand is that when the one you're serving is the God who is setting us free, by serving him is where you will find true freedom. So let's get into it. Here's the big question that we're asking today. The big question is, how are we to understand the concept of freedom in Christ? Let's think about a biblical definition of freedom. Freedom in Christ. So our text today is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to go back and try to explain it. So verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, sorry, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And later he'll say that your father is the devil. Okay, let's go back and look at this. Let's, let's first begin by looking at verses 33 and 34. Uh, then they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here's the big concept number one. Sin equals slavery. Sin equals slavery. Now I'm gonna flesh this out for you. And here's something that you might wanna write down because I didn't put it in the outline. It's been my observation that on the earth, what people typically will strive for on the earth is three things. Three things. Stuff, possessions, whatever you want to call it, I'm calling it stuff. Stuff, personal enjoyment, and lack of responsibility. If we could just have a life where we could have all the things that we want, that we could get as much pleasure, personal pleasure, personal enjoyment as we could possibly get, and as a bonus, not have to go to work on Monday, boy, then we'd be happy, right? <laughs> Don't know what to answer, do you? Those, that's my observation. We, we seek for stuff, enjoyment, and lack of responsibility. So what does it mean to become a slave to sin? It means pursuing pleasure. Pursuing pleasure. And I want to argue this morning that pleasure, we can think about this in all different kinds of ways, Right? A person, a young person can go out and I get it. Young folks, I get it. I was once a young man in my parents' house 
I felt the weight of the oppressive bonds and the shackles that my parents had placed on me, not allowing me to go wherever I want whenever I want to go there, not allowing me to be with whoever I want whenever I want to be with them, not allowing, I, I get all that. And so uh, I understand what it means when I finally got dropped off at college and it's like free at last, free at last, good Lord Almighty, I'm free at last. I can do whatever I want. And my observation was, is that I sought for pleasure. I came up empty and in slavery. You see, seeking for pleasure is very self-centered, very self-centered. I need to get me what I want. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says, let no one seek his own good, but also the good of his neighbor. Acts 20, 35 reminds us that Jesus said it's more blessed to give then receive. What I'm arguing for this morning, what I'm telling you this morning is God did not design us to be creatures who go out and only seek for our own pleasure. And that when we do that in violation of God's design, it does not end well. It actually ends in slavery. Why? Another reason is because pleasure is short lasting, right? Now, that's very obvious to us when we talk about drug or alcohol or substance addiction. A person gets, gets the substance, they, get a, they take the substance, they get a high. That high wears off. And then what's the only thing that's consuming their thoughts? How do I get what I need to get or steal the money that I need to steal to get the next hit of that substance? That, that makes, that's very understandable when we think about a, a substance abuser. But it also is true when you think about someone who is somebody who is trying to misuse, for example, the gift of sexuality and just get sexual pleasure. That's something that's going to have to just, it's going to dominate your life. The, you'll, you'll tell guys, a woman, uh, say you're single, you'll tell a woman whatever you think she wants to hear to get her where you want her. Hurting her in the process and telling lies Thus, not using your mouth and your words the way God designed you them to be used. It ends up being a corrosive agent to the community. Again, not healthy for you or the people that you're involved with. It's short-lasting, and so we have to chase it. Proverbs 21.17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Why is he a poor man? Because he's exhausting in his, in his quest for pleasure, in his quest for that next dopamine hit, whatever that is, whether it's drugs, sex, whatever it is, in his or her quest for pleasure, he will give all of his time, his treasure, and talent to pursue it. He is now serving sin. He's in bondage to it. The shackles are in place, and he is serving it. What I want for you, young people, what I want for us as a church and for all Christians and all people is for us to enjoy maximum freedom. And so what I see in this text is uh, found in verses 31 and 32, which is this, discipline equals freedom. Now, how did I get there? Let's look, let's look. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's the word. What's a disciple? A disciple is someone who disciplines themselves to follow someone who has a teaching or, or is walking in a particular way or has a particular set of views. They're an adherent. That's what a disciple is. Jesus made it very clear what our job on the earth is. Therefore, he said, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Our job on the earth is to make people, is to invite people into a relationship where they will discipline themselves to follow Jesus. And you think, wow, that's, young people, I've been there. You think, oh, that's oppressive. Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And I'm inviting you to think, the exact opposite, because it's not. Is it hard? Yes. Does it require self-discipline and sacrifice? Yes. But, but let me just share this with you. We all know, we may not practice this, right? But we all know that in order to, to get good at a sport, so we, we have a Christian school. We're blessed to have a Christian school in this church. Uh, the Christian school has an athletic program, uh, and you know volleyball is a big deal around here. And so the students who are involved in volleyball, the girls that are involved in, in volleyball, know if they want to play for Delaware Christian School Volleyball, they need to practice. They need to uh, probably hone their skills in the off-season, right? They know they need to, when the coach is speaking, they need to be quiet and listen. They know that when the coach gives them advice on how to play better, they need to take that advice and try to incorporate it into their game. They know all these things right? We don't always do all these things, but we know intuitively, if you want to get better at a sport, you must practice. And that practice takes discipline and sacrifice. We also know as human beings in, in, the, uh, in the United States, we know that if we want to be healthier in our bodies, right? If we want to be healthier in our bodies, diet and exercise, that's the key, right? I don't know anybody, uh, unless they were sick, I don't know anybody that got skinnier and healthier unless they were practicing diet and exercise. Now, again, we know that. We don't always do it, but we know that. And I just wonder if we also know that the same rules that apply to sports or uh, apply to our overall health, those same rules apply in every aspect of our, of our spiritual life. They do. In other words, if you want to learn how to have maximum freedom in, uh, maximum freedom in your relationships, then you must learn to control your tongue and to use your words to build people up and not to tear them down, right? You have to use your word. You have to learn how to use your tongue in that way. And there's other examples. And that takes discipline, right? Because here's, what I'm, here's my default setting. My default setting is you come up to me and you insult me and I want to give you one right back. And I want to make it zing, right? I want to make it hurt. That's what my flesh wants to do. But what God says is that in doing that, that might give you some temporary pleasure, and it will. You'll get a nice little dopamine hit when you, give, when you deliver that little insult. Boom, got him. Ha, that felt good. But don't be surprised if that person doesn't trust you or talk to you much in the near future until you patch things up. Is that freedom?
with disciplining ourselves. So, so I got there. Let me, let me back up. I got there because a disciple is someone who disciplines themselves. What are we supposed to be discipling ourselves to do? We're supposed to, disciples are supposed to abide, to remain in God's word, which is the truth, right? So we'll know the truth. And what will the truth get us? The truth will get us freedom. That's how I got there. So to discipline ourselves according to God's word equals freedom. Now, I know discipline equals freedom is a phrase that's often uttered by a Navy SEAL named Jocko Wilnick, and he's oftentimes talking about health and well-being and all that kind of good stuff. But it, this is, I believe, a biblical concept. Discipline equals freedom. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says this, have nothing to do with irre irreverent or silly myths. Instead, train yourself for godliness. And how do we train ourselves for godliness? We seek out the truth of God's word. We understand what God's word has to say. And then we do the hard work of beginning to incorporate that into our everyday lives. James 1.22 James says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we're to pursue joy. How do we do that? by being others-centered. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, stop focusing on yourself and be others-centered. Proverbs 14, 21 says, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed, but happy, but you know, blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Matthew 7, 12 says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as they would have them do unto you if you want to get King James about it, right? And what's the thing about joy? Okay, so pleasure is me-centered and it's short-lasting, but what's the thing about joy? The thing about pursuing joy, disciplining ourselves to walk in the way of Christ is that it's long-lasting. Psalm 1611 says this, the psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. There's that pleasure word, pleasures forevermore. You don't think God wants you to have pleasure? He does. He wants you to have pleasure without the bondage, without being in shackles and chains to sin. He wants you to enjoy life with maximum freedom, which means that you have to walk in the way of Christ. And I'm gonna spend the rest of the sermon fleshing that out until I run out of time. And then I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go home and think about these things. So here are some, here are some uh, practical realities. And I apologize, the type is small. These should be in your, in your outline. And I'm, if it's anything like the first service, I'm not gonna get to all of them. You wanna talk about freedom? Let's talk about relationships. I already mentioned this a little bit, but 1 Corinthians 13, as you know, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. You get, you get all that. Here's the thing. I don't know anybody who has lived a life of pursuing their selfish pleasures. I don't know anybody who, you would describe that person who has spent their life pursuing their own selfish pleasures as a person that you want to hang around with too much. They're selfish. They're only concerned about themselves. And so when that person drives, finally drives themselves completely into a ditch, 
They're not surprised, or they shouldn't be surprised, when they wake up and really the only support system they have around them is their parents. Because I don't know too many mamas who don't love their kids no matter what. I don't know too many papas like that either. But for the person, it's been my observation, and I think the Bible bears this out, for the person that spends their lives. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the Apostle Paul and how he was making his way through Ephesus. And he gathered the elders of the city, right? And they came and they, they prayed with him and they, they wept because he was leaving. And they wept because of the possibility that he might not see them ever again. And they gave him provisions and sent him on his way, right? When a person who lives their lives in, lives their life investing in others, living an other-centric life, when that person finds themselves in trouble, I mean, it's the plot, basically, to It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's, we're approaching Christmas, right? Uh, Jimmy Stewart's character in that movie spent his life helping other people out. I know it's not a spiritual movie, but you get the idea. When that person hits trouble, then there's a community, a church family, friends, relatives that surround them willing to pray and help and be there. Who is more free, the self-centered person or the other-centered person? Well, it turns out it's the, it's the other-centered person. And I get it. It's counterintuitive. You would think, well, if I want to enjoy maximum freedom, I should go out there and live life for me. And I'm telling you, that's the pathway to bondage. To slavery. And so it turns out the Bible has all kinds of things to say about how to maintain healthy relationships with other people. But it takes discipline and self-control to begin to put those things into practice. It looks like when you wrong someone, going to the person and saying, please forgive me. Not I'm sorry if I'm sorry if you might be offended by something that I did. I mean, that's an NBA apology, right? That's a pro sports athlete apology. If anything that I did offended anybody, then I'm sorry for that. No, you go to the person and you say, listen, when I, when I told you how much of a jerk you are, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Will you please forgive me? And you give the other person the chance to say yes or no. It looks like uh, when someone has a need and you are able to fill it to, to sacrifice of your time and your treasure and your talent to go and help them out. You get the idea. This also has financial ramifications too, right? Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folks, I know money. I, no, no. I know money. I know people. <laughs> I know people who have scrimped and saved and worked and sacrificed their whole lives to watch a number in a bank account grow to a very large number. They discipline themselves today so that they could watch that number grow and grow and grow and grow. And again, how much money a person has isn't in and of itself a sin, but we have to understand how much money... How much money is it going to take for you to fall in love with it and then, then you're shackled to the love of money? Anyway, I've seen somebody like that. So I've seen people like that who scrimp and save and they build wealth over time. And I've seen these same people in their retirement years 
unable to spend the vast riches that they've accumulated, the money that they're stewarding for God, because they've disciplined themselves for so long to not spend one dime beyond what they can. It's the person that goes to the mechanic and says, uh, how much for the oil change? And they say, you know, uh, it's $20 for the oil change. That's, that's not true, but uh, $50 for the oil change. And then they said, well, uh, how much if you don't put on an oil filter? You know, well, it's $40 for that oil change. Well, how much if you use... Do you, do you have anybody you change the oil maybe 10,000 miles in? You know, I think you can go 20. Uh, just take that used oil, put it back. In. Well, we'll do that for 10 bucks. You know. They scrimp and they save. And so they go into their retirement years and they can't spend it. They suffer from the love of money. In fact, I've seen people that have spent the, their retirement years trying to figure out creative ways to shelter that money and keep the government's hands off of it because they can't, not only can they not spend it, but they want the government to keep their hands off of it. God's design for money is in Ephesians 4.28 and other places too. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. God's plans for our lives for money is to help us to avoid falling in love and becoming enslaved to money is that we would be good stewards of God's money, that we would earn what we need to live, enjoy the good things that God has given us, and then be ready to give and help those in need. It requires discipline to not allow yourself to fall in love with stuff. It takes practice to learn to say, but if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. This works its way out in our sexual lives, our sex lives. Um, I don't talk about this a whole lot, but I probably should because we, we're, we're living in a generation. Do you, do you realize that we're living in a generation? For those of you that are like 40 or older, like me, dating, dating used to mean you're kind of courting somebody for the intention of getting married, right? You know what dating means today? I don't know. I literally don't know. When, when two people tell me that they're dating, I don't know if they're courting for the purpose of getting married. I don't know if they're hooking up. I don't know if they're living together. I don't know what's going on because the word has lost its meaning. And so what the world tells our young people, what the world will tell you is freedom looks like swipe right. For those of you that are 40 or older, you might not get that joke because you're not on a dating app or whatever. But it means casual relationships until your heart figures out what it wants and you're setting your feet on the pathway of bondage, slavery. God's plan for sexuality, and it's a beautiful gift of God, God's plan for sexuality is for a man and a woman to enjoy maximum intimacy with one another in the context of a marriage. It is a beautiful picture of two people joined together through a lifelong commitment to one another who care for one another in every aspect, in their mind, their body, their emotion, their spiritual life, in every aspect, they are connected 
It's a wonderful thing. And I want everybody to enjoy uh, the gift of God the, and the maximum freedom to enjoy the gift of God. But you cannot do that if you pursue God's, if you think that you can pursue the same level of, of satisfaction in mishandling and abusing God's gift according to the ways of the world and the misunderstanding of the word freedom. Works its way out in emotional, in emotional things too. Uh, in Genesis chapter four, I'll, I'll read it, you know it. It's, it's the account of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter four, uh, um, we read this. I'm gonna pick it up in verse uh, six. You know, each of these guys offered a sacrifice and uh, God liked Abel's sacrifice and did not like Cain's sacrifice. So verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? So you get the picture. God is not approving of Cain's sacrifice and Cain feels bad about it. Then God says this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at, your, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See what's going on there. There's a, there's, a, there's a principle in scripture that's repeated over and over again, and that is if we, if we do what is good according to what God says is good, our emotions will follow suit and we will typically feel good about that. There are caveats to that. If you've not practiced, if you've not disciplined yourself to practice God's way of life, the first time you practice it, it may feel like going to the dentist. But what I believe you will happen will, will be kind of the same experience of going to the dentist. If you had a toothache before you go to the dentist, you go to the dentist, you get drilled on for a little while, there's some temporary pain, but then the pain goes away and you're free to enjoy everything that you enjoyed after that. You're, the food and, and hot, hot and cold drinks and all that kind of good stuff. You're free to enjoy that. It's the same thing. So these emotions that God gives us, when we do good, we feel typically feel good. And when we do wrong, we typically feel bad. And what we try to do, I'll just ask the question a different way. Where is it written in scripture that Christians are always going to feel good? I mean, if you listen to the Christian radio station, these people drink a lot of cappuccino before 4 a.m., don't they? Good morning, everybody. It's a great day to be alive. You know, the Lord loves you and everything is happy and smiling and we're only gonna tell good testimonies on this show. We're not gonna have any of this, the Lord's taking me through a trial right now stuff because life is good. Where is it written that we always get to feel good? You know why we don't always get to feel good? Because we're sinners. You realize that, right? And so when we sin, when we violate God's law, or his word, when we miss the mark, we're gonna feel bad about it. And that's where we're going to, if we're doing this right, we're going to go back to the word of God and we're going to deal with that sin God's way. Did you do wrong to your neighbor? then go to them, seek forgiveness, and make restitution. You will restore the relationship with God. You will restore the relationship with your neighbor, and you will grow in the process. It's like a triple whammy, if not a quadruple whammy. So it'll affect your emotional life. You know, bad uh, negative feelings are oftentimes the, the dashboard warning 
on the, the dashboard of our lives, and we typically try to make them go away. We make them go away in a whole host of ways. Uh, my favorite is eating things. So some people will lose their appetite when they're, getting, when they're sideways with someone or they're, you know, they're feeling bad about something. But, uh, but I uh, feel the gravitational pull to the Little Debbie snack cakes. <laughs> little Debbie is not allowed in my house. Do not buy me Little Debbies unless you want me to give them to Delaware Christian School. And they shouldn't be eating them either. Call me Michelle Obama. Pride. Pride. You know, the world around us tells us that the, the way to get what we want is to have a big personality and go in and just claim what is ours and, and run over people to get what we want and, and all these kinds of things. To treat people like chattel. You know, one of the things that's on my heart recently, and my wife knows this because we've talked about it, one of the things that's been on my heart recently is, you know, there's a lot, there, there's a labor shortage out there right now. Have you noticed this? There's a labor shortage. Uh, one of the reasons I think that there's a labor shortage out there is I think that people are being, I think that people are generally getting sick and tired of being lied to by corporate leadership. How many of you, how many of you out there can tell the story of how, how uh, if you work at a big corporation, of how an edict came down from on high that you didn't know was coming, and it was painted, the picture that was painted is, hey, we've got good news for you. We're making some improvements to the lives of our employees. And then when they spell out the details, it's you're getting the shaft. Well, when we treat people, when we treat people like that, when we say, I'm the executive, and I can do whatever I want. Not, and let's say that you were the executive and you had to do some cost-cutting measures. At least you could have a conversation on an adult level with your people. But no, you, you send them a message and say, good news. Uh, we've got great news about your benefits package. It's getting better. You're getting a bonus this year. And then you read the details and realize it's going to cost you way more just to keep your insurance this year out of your own pocket. That's pride, and we can't treat people like that. I mean, the Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The people that are under your care, the people that you have, whether you're a parent and the people under your care are your kids or you're an, a, a leader and you're, the people under your care are employees, we have to be humble and treat them with love and dignity. I once, knew, I once knew a story about a guy, I'm gonna run out of time. I once knew a story about a guy who, uh, when he, he was put as a supervisor over a department, and, and this is what he told his employees. He said, listen, everybody in this department, I don't want you to be here five years from now. My goal, my life, I'm gonna spend my time uh, helping each one of you grow in your professional abilities so that you can move up the ladder, and my goal is that none of you are here in five years. Let's go. And he systematically started working with those people and helping them hone their skills. Do you know how many people he lost in five years? And he went to him and he said, what's wrong with you people? I told you I wanted you to, to advance and I've seen you person after person not take a promotion. And they said, why would we want to work for anybody else? You love us. You care about us. 
See, the pathway to freedom is exactly the opposite of what we think. We think, oh, I'm gonna do some cost-cutting measures and I'm gonna save the company some money and I'll get a little bit of a bonus and everything will be fine. You're gonna run that company into the ground. Pride. There are health benefits and, and I, I could talk about diet and exercise and, and, and all that kind of good stuff and the Bible talks about all these things. But in Proverbs chapter three, verse, I, I wanna emphasize one thing. In Proverbs chapter three, verse eight, the Bible says that, it, uh, that wise living will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Healing to your flesh and refreshment, refreshment to your bones. Now, in the first service, the guy sitting up here in the front row was Dr. Matt Hintz, and so I asked him a bunch of questions without telling him that I was gonna do that, and, uh, and he agreed with everything that I said. There is a mind-body connection in our lives, folks, that I don't fully understand, but I do know this. I have seen people who are normally healthy people run their health into the ground, not because they have cancer, not because they overate, not because they ran it into the ground because the sin in their lives and the associated bad feelings had an impact on their physical bodies. And I'm not just talking about drug addiction or something like that. I'm talking about the bad feelings that they experienced day after day because of their repeated sins had an impact on their physical health. And so when the proverb says it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, I'm inviting you to walk in the way of Christ because that's the wise thing to do. And it will probably likely garner health benefits, mental, what, what the world calls mental health, physical health, the whole thing. But the Bible also talks about, you know, diet and exercise and uh, it talks about how living in the way of Christ will, or living in the way of God will, will promote good sleep, right? Um, and, you know, the Bible also has things to say about substances. You know, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and who is ever led astray by it is not wise. Oh, I could keep going. There's verbal things, you know, using your words to build others up and not to tear them down. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks all about that. Um, learning to live under authority in a, in a very peaceful way, in a very life-giving way. Uh, your attitude, I, your attitude is a big thing. You know, we live in a time right now where everybody wants to be a victim. And, and, and people are being convinced by people in leadership and authority that if you play the victim, here's what we can do. We can, take, we can claim victimhood status, then we can go tax everybody else or somehow extract from them some power or some money and we can give that to you and you will be happy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Now there are people out there that are legitimate victims of crimes and we have a court system to deal with that but there are, there are whole groups of people that are being told you can't get ahead in life because somebody is victimizing you when there's no direct evidence that, that, that that's happening. This is what the scripture says. Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. What does this mean? Proverbs is, is Hebrew poetry, and it's often written in something called parallelism. And so the two concepts that are in this, po this line of poetry are associated. So that's how you translate it. What Proverbs 15, 15 means is those who see themselves as afflicted, to those who see themselves as afflicted, every day looks bad. Everything looks evil. Everything looks bad. To those who have adopted the position that they are in an afflicted group, that they're victims. But the cheerful of heart, 
The ones who walk in gratitude, the ones who walk in thankfulness to God for all that he's given them, even if what he's given them is not all that great, the ones that choose to look at life that way, to them, life is a continual feast. Even when all I have to eat today is a McDonald's McDouble and a cup of water. To that person, life is a continual feast. My apologies for those of you that like McDoubles. See, the pathway to freedom in our attitude is to, be, is to walk in a way that is thankful to God for all that he's given us. Uh, there's so many other categories. There's theologically talking about false teachers um, and, not, and not going down the path of, of twisting the scripture to make it say what you want it to say, which, by the way, is, is many churches in Delaware County who have taken the scripture and twisted it because they want it, they want there's a, there's a way of life out there that they want to adopt as right and godly. So they twist the scripture to make that, that lifestyle valid according to their interpretation. It's sick and it's the pathway of slavery and bondage instead of just taking God at his word. There's other things I didn't put in the outline. There's educational realities, there's cultural realities, there's governmental freedom and there's church freedom. I'll talk about, a bit about church freedom then I'll wrap this up. Folks, uh, when it, comes to, when it comes to the church, I, I just want to share with you that I feel like I, I feel like, I think that I grew up uh, in a church culture that made an idol of following rules instead of promoting freedom. That's just my experience. But I think that what I'm telling you today, young people, was never shared with me. What was shared with me is follow Jesus. And what following Jesus looks like is don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date any girls who do. But what I'm telling you today, young people, what I'm telling you today is that it's, it's not that at all. Forget about that garbage. What I'm telling you today is that the way of Jesus Christ, freedom in Christ is actually the most liberating way that you can live. It's the way of, of peace and joy because God designed you, he told you how to live, and if you will adopt his, if you will discipline yourself to walk in those ways, you will enjoy good relationships with other people. You will enjoy uh, a right understanding of your finances and all the things that are on this list, right? So we as a church, we need to follow Christ and we need to discipline ourselves and the ones underneath us to follow Christ precisely. And here's what I mean by precisely. Drinking alcohol in and of itself is not a sin. <laughs> Being drunk is a sin. Is it wise to drink alcohol? Most of the time, I, I don't find it wise in my life to drink, no. But is it a sin? No, it's not. So let's stop teaching our kids that it is, right? Is dancing a sin in and of itself? No, David danced like a fool. He did. He said, I'll be even more undignified than this. When somebody said, you're dancing like a fool, he's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> what our culture has done oftentimes to dancing is sinful, but dancing in and of itself is not a sin. So let's not teach our kids that it is. Artistic expression is not a sin. Christians have this crazy, uh, this, Christians have this crazy uh, uh, 
I've grown up in, in a culture where Christians have a crazy bad, rep, uh, uh, we have a, a crazy bad relationship with art, artistic expression. I mean, have you listened to some contemporary Christian music? Some of it's good, but the stuff I grew up with, there was a funny sketch that was done by John Christ where he was like uh, doing an interview with some couples, uh, some, some individuals that were trying to get on Christian mingle. So he asked this girl a series of questions. He says, I'm gonna give you a worldly, a worldly musical artist. You give me the Christian equivalent. So he, goes down, so he goes down the list. Justin Timberlake, she says, Toby Mack. Katy Perry, she says, Francesca Batticelli. She says, he says, Nickelback. She says, Skillet. He says, Switchfoot. She says, Switchfoot. And oh my gosh, our art. I mean, look at the, look at the state of Christian t-shirts today. We just take worldly logos. We can't even be original. Look at what Leonardo da Vinci did with his God-given artistic skill. We need to get back to this, folks. Our culture is out there and, and artists, artists, painters, poets are having a tremendous impact on these generations. And we've just said, art, no, we don't wanna have anything to do with that because it might be sinful. It doesn't have to be. Encourage your kid to go into the arts, right? Encourage them to use their God-given talent to paint and to write music and poetry and novels to tell the story that's the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ. So we need to preach Christ precisely in the church. Not going, preaching the whole counsel, the full counsel of God, but not our made up pharisaical rules on top of that. I think a lot of damage is done when we do that. Okay, so the question is what does freedom of Christ look like? Here's what it looks like. Contrary to what our flesh tells us, doing whatever we want is the pathway to brokenness for ourselves and the lives we touch. True freedom is found in living according to the way we were designed by God. You wanna find freedom? You're not gonna find it in sitting around on the couch and doing nothing. You're gonna find it in taking the God-given talents that he's put into you. The word of God says that he's, he's given each one of us talents. The God-given talents that each one of us has put in you and then to put it to work, disciplining yourself to live God's way that was modeled for us by Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm gonna talk about him in a second too. Here's possible applications. First of all, you have a choice. You can yield to sin and allow yourselves into slavery. And I'm sick and tired of watching our youth graduate from high school, get dropped off at college, even a Christian college, and then just run right to slavery. I mean, they, go, they just go at a full sprint. I'm gonna run right into slavery. We see it all the time. Young people, please, please consider your steps, your life, Walk in the way of Jesus Christ and you will find freedom and joy there. If you don't believe me, come see me. I'll give you some names you can talk to of people who try to find it in the other places. And they'll tell you of very dark times in their lives. Secondly, you have been liberated to, have you been liberated to enjoy this freedom by trusting Jesus as your savior from sin? Here's the reality of the situation. God is so 
God is so uh, amped up and thrilled to give us the freedom that he's offering us in Jesus Christ that not only did he send his only son to die on the cross for our sins and make that offer of salvation available to anybody who will call upon the name of Jesus as, as their Lord and Savior. Not only has he done that, not only has he given us his word so that we know what he actually thinks about these things, not only has he given us the gift of each other, you know, the church, to, to have fellowship together, to hold each other accountable, to, to work together, to walk in freedom. He's also given us the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's taken up residence in our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit, which I call like the turbo booster of freedom, right? He's gonna, when we try to direct our steps down a pathway of slavery, the Holy Spirit's gonna go, wait a minute, hang on. I'm not supposed to be going that way. I want you to walk in the way of freedom, And so if you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your savior from sin, I'd love to talk to you more about that or talk to anybody around you. They know, they know. And finally, who will you share these ideas with? I'm convinced that we've spent entirely too long when we come across a person who is seeking and we tell them about Jesus and they say, well, what do I have to do to be saved? Well, you gotta, you gotta go to church, you gotta read your Bible, you gotta pray, you gotta... We just start ladening them with a whole bunch of rules and we portray Christianity as a set of rules. No, change your tune, folks. Change your language. You say, no, if you're, gonna, if you're going to follow Christ, yes, his way of life is a way of discipline, of self-discipline. But th that self-discipline, like diet and exercise, leads to better health. Like practicing a sport leads to better performance. Walking in the way of Christ leads to maximum freedom. So let's talk about it that way. Thanksgiving, Christmas is coming up. I've given you some fodder to consider. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Father, we do not want to sell our birthright for a pot of stew. We do not want to be people who live for the what can I get now to satisfy my cravings, but instead discipline ourselves to be the people that you've called us to be, to walk in the path of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, uh, we need your help to do that. We're dependent on you each and every day for your word, for your guidance, your Holy Spirit operating in our lives, for the gift of each other that we thank you for continually. Father, as we gather with our families uh, in a few days to, to eat some food, pray that you would help us to think of, of ways that we can discipline ourselves to open our mouths and bring you into the conversation and to express with joy the freedom that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless.